one step in this long progress. It's been a team effort by us all the way. We're but part of the whole team that's worked so hard. The shuttle era will come to an end. But they won't stop inspiring, and they won't stop being a part of the fabric of America. We choose to go to the moon. Alright, and welcome everybody to another episode of the Talking Space Podcast. We are in Talking Space, episode 425, for the week of Monday, August 13th, 2012. Also in with me is Gene McCulka. Welcome, Gene. Hey, Sawyer, good evening. Got a lot to talk about today. Yes, indeed. For those of you who don't get that reference, that is a reference from a NASA tweet from when Mars Curiosity landed that said... Mars, I am in you by the Mars Curiosity rover, which successfully last week landed on the surface of Mars right on target at Gale Crater, just as expected at 1.31 a.m. Eastern Time, at least when we received the signal for it. This is a pretty big, pretty daring mission that they sent. It was a SUV-sized rover known as the Mars Science Laboratory, or as we call it, Curiosity. And it was sent on its eight-month journey to the surface of Mars with a whole load of science experiments, and it's now sending back some color panoramas and more. Yeah, sorry, you you were with me uh, at one of the, uh, the the NASA shuttle launches. I believe uh, John Grotzinger was give, was on a panel uh, talking about uh, uh, the Mars Science Laboratory and how we were going to get there. And that was the first time uh, I think we got introduced to Skycrane as a uh, as a landing apparatus. And I remember the the looks that I was exchanging with either yourself or Mark or somebody, and we were kind of looking at each other like, "What is somebody kind of like smoking something?" Um, as we found out later that the uh, the, the thrusters on Skycrane are uh, Viking vintage uh, thrusters. and uh, But gosh darn it, the whole thing worked. I mean, it worked flawlessly from what we're seeing. And I'm sorry, not, I don't think one thing has gone wrong thus far. There was a little little blip with the, with the weather data, but that was really about it. They kind of fixed, figured out what was going on with that and, and fixed it. Um, and this thing has been going, you know... <laughs> by the book all the way but wow it was a you know sorry you were you were in uh, various hangouts and we were kind of sort of bouncing around twitter and and i hosted a, a hangout for my other other uh venture and uh wow i mean there was a lot of nail biting but I'll, I'll tell you a lot of uh you know sighs of relief and there was a lot of emotion surrounded by the landing too and and we you know and, and these are just people who support the program these aren't people that uh you know were behind the consoles from what i saw there was a huge you know you know high fives hugs yelling screaming going on all over the place when that thing landed and justifiably so folks that 
took care of curiosity and root you know uh hats off to you you did a great job curiosity is in her new home now and ready to go to work so uh we'll be looking forward to seeing what the what the mission yields as far as uh the geology around gale crater and see what what, what we're going to find uh one of the things though that i get a little torqued well not exactly torqued up, just a little mystified at is this isn't really a blunt search for life, okay? And I've heard I've heard that being thrown around in the media a lot. And just to set the record straight, Curiosity doesn't have any biologic experiments on board. Curiosity is more of a of a geologist and a chemist. Uh, she's looking for the the um, you know possibly a an environment where life may have existed at some point in the past, but this is not a direct biological search for life. So I just want to go ahead and get that straightened out. Well, basically, now that Curiosity is down, I should add, is that they got to give it a little bit of a software update. Right. And uh, it's kind of cool that the fact that, you know, like on your computer, you get a little pop-up that says Windows need to restart or, you know, Mac has an update. Well, Curiosity's kind of got that right now, except you would be really, really probably annoyed at the load time because the uplink and download speed is not as fast as your home internet, but they're changing the software from EDL, or Entry, Descent, and Landing software, to actual functioning software. A couple souls from now, they can actually start the science work. Right, exactly. And this new software, you know, a version, well, uh, what they're calling uh, Release 9, which was the flight software that's being overwritten, and uh, uh, release 10, which is the, the science software that's being installed now. Again, if you really think about it, you know, you've got your home computer there, right? You know, and all of a sudden you, you've got to go ahead and go, oh boy, here we go with all this. And you know what it's like on your home computer to, to go ahead and just throw patches on and things like that. That's essentially what they're doing, but they're doing it long distance. Think about that for a moment. They're doing it on Mars. Just just kind of think about that for, just for a sec. So so are they upgrading then to OSX Mars Lion? <laughs> OSX Martian Lion. There we yes. go. Yes. So are they uh, had an interesting virtual visitor today, no? Uh, the team? The team at the Jet Propulsion Laboratory, yes, they did. They got a phone call from eh, kind of an important person, President Barack Obama, who called to... Give them a congratulations on their successful landing and hopes for a good mission, as well as talking about his goals for continued funding for NASA and the programs. Of course, being a political figure, he had to get political. But at the same time, was able to joke around a little bit because one of the members of the entry, descent, and landing team... Here we go. <laughs> has become kind of famous. Oh, yeah. He is now known as the Mohawk Guy. That, that sounds kind of funny, right? Well, he was flight director. Bobak Ferdowski is his name, his actual name. But people just call him on the internet Mohawk Guy because for each mission and each stage of the mission, he has had a different hairdo. But they happened to catch him on landing on NASA TV with the Mohawk with some stars as well on his actual head. And it has made him internet famous, and Barack Obama happened to mention that today as well, with a good laugh from everybody. I understand there's a special Mohawk guy that's working on the mission. <laughs> <laughs> you know, he, he, he seems to have been uh, one of the many stars on the, of the show last Sunday night. 
And, uh, uh, you know, I, I, in the past, thought about uh, getting a mohawk myself. So, uh, my, my, my team keeps on discouraging me. Uh, and uh, now that he's received marriage proposals and thousands of new Twitter followers, I think that uh, I'm, I'm going to go back to my team and, and see if it makes sense. But, uh, it, it, Let's go to visit a new fashion uh, at JPL. <laughs> <laughs> it, it does sound like uh, NASA's come a long way from the white shirt, black, uh, dark rim glasses, and the pocket protection. You know, the uh, you guys are, are, are a little cooler than you used to be. But uh, <laughs> you know, it, I just I find it funny that we landed a rover 154 million miles away on a totally completely different planet, and people are talking about the hair of the mission controllers. Yeah, I mean, you know, no science. <laughs> well, whatever works. If it gets people interested, that's fine. And I understand too. The, the he's believe uh, uh, he's on Twitter too, no, uh, no doubt. And um, I believe he's already gotten a plethora of marriage proposals. Yes, he has. I was about Twitter. to say, if if you wanted to marry him, you've got to get in line because apparently there is a huge long list of people. I mean. You know, n not a bad catch there, ladies. You know, a guy smart, intelligent, you know, you know, some comfort comfortable in my own masculinity to say, yeah, he's, he's a hunk. And, uh, you know, um, you know, he's, he's uh, you know, and he's, a, he's eligible. I mean, you know, what else do you want? Go ahead. Boy, this just turned a little awkward here. <laughs> I'm learning things I never knew about you, Gene. <laughs> But um, can't wait to see the science that this thing's going to come up with. Yes, indeed. If the pictures that we're getting are any indication, I mean, this is going to be an amazing mission. Oh, yeah. I mean, just the photographs alone are, are, have, been, <laughs> have been well worth all the nail biting. The last panorama from the mass cam, uh, which I believe is up on, obviously, the mass that just got deployed a couple of days ago. Um, that photo alone is just absolutely breathtaking. That's just a that's just to whet our appetite about what what's to come. So this is going to be neat. Indeed, and if you want to see any of these images, you can check out mars.jpl.nasa.gov/msl, and you can check them out yourself. And again, just to just to sign out of this particular segment. Congratulations to everybody over at JPL that had anything to do with this mission. Uh, and uh, and the funds yet yet to come. Uh, we're all looking forward to it. Yes, and here's some great finds on the way. Okay, continuing along to our next story, we're going to be talking about getting off of Earth, but with commercial crews. Of course, the commercial crews are getting a little bit of help from NASA itself, and they are funding something called the Commercial Crew Integrated Capability Initiative, or CCI CAP which its goal is to ultimately lead to the availability of commercial human spaceflight services for government and commercial customers, according to a NASA press release. This was widely debated about who would actually get the money from it. Well, here are the partners. Sierra Nevada got $212.5 million. Space Exploration Technologies, or as we know them, SpaceX, received $440 million. And the one who received the most was Boeing with $460 million. You notice some big names off that list? Yeah. Uh, uh, ATK uh, for one. Blue Origin for another. 
Uh, I know uh, Excalibur Almaz was not even in the running. They didn't submit a bid. Uh, Excalibur Almaz, for those who don't know, is the Isle of Man-based uh, program that is using a uh, some surplus salute equipment uh, and some other uh, surplus um, equipment from uh, from the old Soviet Union to go ahead and have a small station, if you will, fly around the moon and return. They were not. They didn't place a bid. But uh, Blue Origin isn't there, and surprisingly enough, ATK isn't there. Um, to clarify something, um, during the press conference, Bill Gerstenmeier said that the awards were not given on the basis of, you know, first, second, third. Uh, they were basically given away on, on the basis of need. Uh, Boeing is, uh, for those of you who don't know, is building a conical-shaped vehicle called the CST-100, that's supposed to uh, fit about seven crew and uh, transport them to the International Space Station. SpaceX, again, has the Dragon capability that they are going ahead and trying to uh, pursue. They have tested this and uh, tested it well in a cargo configuration. They want to see if they can get crew on board. That will be the next steps. And, of course, um, Sierra Nevada is picking up the old HL-20 lifting body design that NASA built in the 1990s and abandoned because of uh, funding issues. And they're rechristening it as the Dream Chaser. And this vehicle is going to sit atop a, uh, an Atlas V. Uh, it is a small mini shuttle. And uh, it will also hold about, uh, hold about seven people. I believe also Boeing is looking at using Atlas V for uh, the CST-100 where SpaceX is obviously going to be using the, the Falcon 9 booster, their own, their own vehicle. The question is this, what happens to Liberty going forward, and, uh, which is the ATK offering? The uh, Liberty booster itself is, uh, is an offshoot of the Space Shuttle SRB engines. I believe it's a five-segment five solid rocket booster as opposed to a four-segment that uh, the shuttle used. The upper stage is built by Astrium. It is the same core stage that's used on the Ariane 5, and they had a, uh, a capsule part of it uh, that was uh, built out of composite material. Uh, it sort of looked like uh, the uh, Lockheed Martin uh, Orion vehicle. Uh, Lockheed Martin was a partner uh, on uh, Liberty. So um, that whole program, from what I understand... And from what I remember, uh, we, we talked to um, Kent Rollinger, who is the project manager of Liberty on, uh, on Space Flight Observer, and he indicated that they would go forward with Liberty, but they would go forward very, very slowly. Now, I've heard some reports here and there that that might be in doubt right now, so we're not too sure where Liberty stands at this point. I'm not too sure what that does to ATK's core business at all. Or if it's going to affect it at all, it might, it might not. It, you know, time will. We'll just have to see how how this whole plays out and how bad the impact is going to be to uh, to ATK in general. I know ATK does have the SLS contract for the two solid rocket boosters on either side of the uh, the core stage for the for the SLS, and uh, we'll just you know that's that's a given. So I, I don't know if it's going to hurt them that badly if, if Liberty goes to by the wayside, but we'll, we'll just have to see what happens. My guess is fewer T-shirt giveaways. 
Yeah, probably. <laughs> probably. Well, there might be more. It might be a fire sale on Liberty T-shirts if they don't don't decide to pursue it. <laughs> so who knows? It's it's kind of my personal opinion is um, I'm kind of kind of bummed out a little bit uh, that Liberty did not get in there because I thought it was a very very you know it was taking two very mature technologies and and kind of marry them to, marrying them together. But uh, uh, as far as you know, a dog in the in the race currently, I don't have one. I think uh, either way, uh, spaceflight wins no matter what happens uh, and no matter who prevails in the next round. I think all in all, um, human spaceflight will win, or at least getting individuals to the ISS will win out. So we'll just have to uh, to stay tuned and uh, and see what uh, transpires from that point. That brings up the interesting question. You said that you know you were upset that Liberty didn't get anything. Who do you think then should not have gotten anything? Personally, I wish the budget were increased to a point where we could go ahead and fund you know just about everybody to let them prove all in all who is, can do this more efficiently. That would make everybody's life easier. But. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. I mean, that in a perfect world, that's what I, I wish wish would happen. Then Mars exploration wouldn't be an issue, even. Yeah, exactly. Um, but uh, it it just it just isn't to be. So to put it short, you wouldn't get rid of anybody. I wouldn't. I'd let them go ahead, do their thing. I and then then after the, the whole whole playing field is 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 run, let letting them prove who's more efficient at at running things. Okay. And then select from those guys. See who's safer. See who's more efficient. See who's who could do it cheaply and 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 safer. Which one of these companies could do it? And then award the contract, the ultimate contract, saying to two to two companies, saying, "Okay, you guys have proven over a long span of time that you two have gone ahead and you've excelled, and you guys can do this safely and cheaper." We're going to give it to you. Congratulations. And just a reminder, we're still paying 60 plus million dollars a seat to to Russia to get our crews to the International Space Station. So the sooner we could stop doing that and go down to what, you know, I believe Gwen Shotwell said she could deliver crew at 20 million dollars a seat. You know, that's quite a savings, kids. So let them let these guys kind of sort of fight it out. And, and, and let them have the seed money to, to do so. And, and we haven't done that. But, you know, it, it's, that's why I'm saying it's a darn shame that ATK didn't get their, even get their chance, chance at bat. So we'll just have to see, again, for the future what happens. Uh, but I, I wish uh, Sierra Nevada all the best. I wish, um, you know, Boeing all the best. And I wish, obviously, SpaceX all the best. They, they so far have been the... The the uh, you know the big man on campus so to speak in in this whole endeavor. Let's just hope for success for all. That's because if at least one wins, then the American space program wins. Exactly, exactly. Well said. Because we all like successes, but unfortunately, with spaceflight, there's always a little bit of failure. And while we were away on our break, we had a couple of them. And let's start with Russia and. If you remember, we talked a little bit about this, I think it was actually about a year ago, there was a spacecraft that was launched, and it was a proton rocket, and as it launched, everything was going fine, until the Breeze M, which is the upper stage of the rocket, 
started losing control of its orientation in space due to a programming error which placed the satellite in the wrong orbit. That's a little bit of a problem, right? Oh, yeah. <laughs> well, about that kind of happened again. This time, there were two satellites on board. The first one, I might add, was the launch of the Express AM-4. This time, we lost a couple of satellites. We lost Telcom-3 and Express MD-2 communication satellites. Now, according to officials and what we know so far, the Breeze M upper stage ignited, and it was scheduled to perform a couple of burns. And on its third scheduled burn, the engine was supposed to fire for 18 minutes, 5 seconds. Instead, it cut off after 7, placing it in a very low orbit at 165 miles up. Oops. Um, yeah, this is just... A lot of people were, were kind of critical of this, and uh, myself included. I, I was a little critical of this as well, uh, saying, well, you know, uh, we, <laughs> and once again, this has happened. It's another kind of sort of black eye for a program that, that looks like it's kind of sputtering at this point. Um, and a lot of analysts actually think there's a lot of, well, I don't know if you guys are familiar with uh, something called dry rot when you touch a piece of wood, um, where, you know, on the outside it looks perfect, but then you go ahead and you touch the wood and it just sort of disintegrates. And that's what some analysts kind of sort of look at this, uh, at the Russian space program, saying it's really got its problems. I mean, you think we've got our problems here. There's a brain drain going on. Um, Within the program, they're not they're, they're, they have not been able to hang on to some really good people. The, the good people that they do have are sort of aging out, and uh, they're not replacing them. Uh, so, uh, you know, you've got that problem. Plus, now, you know, these little strings of failures. You know, Sawyer, you touched on the first one. Um, we've had problems with the Soyuz booster. We've had problems with the Soyuz spacecraft. Um, and now again, this, this, this next failure. So it's kind of shaken up in some eyes. It's, it, it's, it's shaken up confidence in, in a program that right now is, is the only, uh, <laughs> is the only program that can get crew to the international space station, period. I mean, the shuttles are gone. Let's, let's face it. They're now museum pieces. One of them, you know, one of them is officially a museum piece, Another one in October is going to become a museum piece. Endeavor is going out to California. And then in November, of course, Atlantis gets towed down the block to uh, the KSC Visitor Center. So the, the shuttles are out of the picture. Um, what, what do we have? Well, we've got, well, <laughs> again, the error of reliability strikes again. Um, the error of Soyuz, so much for, for the error of re reliability. Again, and I've, I've said this before on this program a couple of times, where you know, you know, Atlantis's uh, APUs weren't even cold, and the Russians were touting the error of reliability. The area, the error of Soyuz has dawned, and here we are with a string of failures. Never tout your safety record, boys and girls. It will come back to bite you, especially in space. Now, as I mentioned, and as you just mentioned, we talked about the first of the failures, and that was with the Russians. Now, unfortunately, the Russians weren't the only ones who had a little bit of a failure. 
And that comes back now to the United States and to NASA. Now, they actually had designed a special type of rocket, which they were calling the Morpheus rocket. It was designed and built by engineers at NASA's Johnson Space Center in Houston to test advanced technologies and approaches to integrated propulsion and guidance, navigation, and control that could be used in the future for cargo missions to the moon. And that is from SpaceFlightNow.com. Little bit of a problem, though. When they brought it to the Kennedy Space Center, they did a free flight test. As the free flight test began, the engines ignited, which I should add is liquid oxygen. And it lifted off, it leaned sideways, it crashed, and then exploded in a large ball of flames. Not the way that they wanted to start off the test program, is it? No, it definitely isn't. And if you look at the movie, uh, we uh, it, it looked to me like perhaps one end did not ignite. And the whole thing just kind of flipped over and 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 you know, blew up into a fireball. It kind of sort of, it, it kind of sort of reminded me a little bit, uh, if folks will go ahead and check their history, uh, of the DCX failure uh, back in the 90s when uh, one of the landing gear did not deploy right. And unfortunately, the, the DCX landed and it kind of tipped over and, and also went up in a ball of flame. And that was pretty much the end of the project. The good news here, though, if, if you want to say that, um, is that uh, then I'm going to go ahead and quote a uh, Space.com article from today, uh, August 13, is that um, the program is going to continue, um, according to uh, folks out there at, the, at Kennedy Space Center. I should go ahead and say that um, Morpheus was built at the Johnson Space Flight Center and brought over to KSC for testing. Um, to quote uh, the article, and I'm going to quote uh, Brandy Dean, who is uh, one of the uh, PA public affairs officers out at Johnson, quote, unfortunately, that's part of development, especially lean development, uh, which is the, you know, which is the God's honest truth. Uh, I would rather see a failure here on the ground, though, than uh, a failure aloft. And uh, uh, again, this is a test program. And let me reiterate that. You know, I know Mark is uh, Mark Ratterman is, is is often good at ob- observing those things. Uh, this is a test program. So if it doesn't work, um, all right, you go back, you fix it, and you go fly. In this case, you have to go back and rebuild because I don't think there's much left. But uh, so far, according to this, the article I'm quoting here from Space.com, uh, the Morpheus programs cost about oh uh, seven million dollars over the past uh, two and a half years. But you've but you learn a lot from this from these tests, and and you take what you can get out of them, and it and, and in a way it, it's it's the way you push things forward, because um, if you don't try to to do you know interesting things and and sometimes you'll fall flat on your face doing them. Uh, you never learn anything. And uh, I know there's a big takeaway from Morpheus. And uh, uh, we'll go back, rebuild, find out what happened, and, and go fly again. Indeed. And if you want to see the video of it, if you like fire and explosions, but not good things for future 
landing technologies on other bodies. You can watch the video. We will link to it in the show notes. The liftoff and failure happens almost immediately, and the explosion happens at about a minute 55 into the video. So about a minute and 45 seconds after the actual failure. That's nasty. Yes, the remnants of it, after seeing pictures of it, is not much. And as you were saying, I, I don't think it's salvageable. No, nah, that, that thing's gone. Um, I mean, you'll, they'll probably make it, and, you know, after they they do the what happened and, and do their autopsy, if you will. Um, they'll probably make, I don't know, little souvenirs out of the thing. Who knows? For the, for the, uh, for the test crew and then have the new, have the new, uh, Morpheus standing by. Indeed. Well, hopefully they can figure out what caused the problem and fix that. And of course we wish them the best of luck on rebuilding. Go Morpheus. Okay. So now we talked a little bit earlier about commercial crew and how they're looking to eventually work on manned spaceflight. Now, NASA still has a manned spaceflight program, and now it has a new person in charge. Right, Gene? Oh, yeah. I'm looking at sort of an article uh, from Space.com dated today. Uh, Peggy Whitson, who was about three years ago named the uh, uh, 13th and uh, uh, chief astronaut of the office, uh, she was the first woman to lead, lead that. Um she uh, stepped down a while back ago, and uh, space shuttle veteran Bob Bankin, who uh, recently uh, had served as one of uh, uh, Peggy Whitson's deputies, uh, is now uh, the new chief astronaut. Uh, the uh, I believe the, the I'm looking at a, at a again a space.com article dated uh, today uh, at about uh, 3 p.m. Um, the job was basically created. Essentially for Deke Slayton, uh, who could not fly uh, at the time because of the, quote, you know, heart fibrillation problem he had, supposedly. Uh, they were a little bit nervous about him actually flying one of the, the old Mercury spacecraft. But you have here a trained astronaut. What what did give him? Well, he essentially was the uh, they gave him this this position of, of lead or lead or chief astronaut to basically, you know, not only to help assign crews, but also to be, you know, the astronauts liaison to the management in, within NASA. And it's it's a critical job. I mean, you've got to go ahead and 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 figure out uh, uh, you know, who, what crew to what crew to assign where, and and so on. And again, you still have crew assignments. There's still a crew cycling to the ISS. So you know, the, it's it's a, a kind of a big deal. But also too, you have to. You know, be a little bit of a politician and a, and a little bit of a, uh, of a, of a, you know, I don't want to say the word deal maker, but that's the only word that comes to my head right now, um, where you've got to be, you know, be a bit of a diplomat. That's a better word uh, with uh, NASA management and so on. So you've got to be a little bit of a bit of a, a politician, too. And um, apparently uh, there's enough faith in uh, Mr. Bankin that he can do this, and uh, I wish him all the best in his new job. This is going to be quite a challenge. Now, of course, while we are talking about astronaut news, there is one bit of astronaut news that occurred over our hiatus that we cannot afford to not mention, and that is, of course, the loss of pioneering astronaut Sally Ride, who not only flew two space shuttle missions – 
becoming the first American female in space, but also ended up becoming a pioneer for science, technology, engineering, and math, or STEM education, amongst young students, girls specifically. Yes, she has a whole, um, her foundation is uh, essentially promoting uh, girls and young women in uh, in STEM education and, and trying to make sure that uh, young women get into the into the sciences and the engineering areas, and uh, if anything, uh, that should be her legacy. Uh, she is also uh, one of the. I believe she served on both panels, uh, the uh, Columbia Accident Investigation Board and the uh, uh, the Blue Ribbon Panel uh, that uh, looked into the Challenger accident. She's the only astronaut uh, that sat on both both of them. Um, she also sat on, uh, most recently, the uh, uh, Norm Augustine uh, Commission uh, to uh, go ahead and, and look at what we're going to be doing post-shuttle. Again, uh, quite a legacy she leaves behind. And uh, again, if, if, if her life is, is marked by something, it is, it is going to be the legacy that she, that she is leaving behind in her foundation. So again, uh, condolences to the family and uh, Gosh darn it. Indeed. Um, you could check out more about Sally Ride Science, which is her organization. You can follow them on Twitter as at Sally Ride Sci, which also links to their website. And we will link to that too in the show notes. Now, on a little bit more of a lighter note, have you ever wondered what the b- NASA is doing? Now, if you've been a long-time listener to the show, you know that we have been a long-time promoter of trying to find ways to get out the word about NASA, since they don't do a very good job of self-promoting themselves. So, we have found a very interesting website that has recently surfaced that is trying to promote NASA spin-offs that people might not know about. The website is called WTFNASA.com. Yeah, this this was an article I kind of sort of stumbled on. This was in uh, uh, on Phoenix Times News. Apparently, there's a gentleman by the name of Jacob Mulligan, who's uh, an undergrad at uh, Northeastern, who just you know kicked off this this particular website with, uh, with just the simple question: What the has NASA done to make your life more awesome? Quote close quote just just from the article. And that's what he's doing. His the the venture again is called WTF NASA, which is kind of you know it's kind of a, a funny way of looking at it. Um, and, and and I guess it, it it's drawing a, a it would it would draw a different audience obviously than the the NASA spinoff page. But I, I guess it's doing the same thing NASA spinoff does, but it's doing it in a much more entertaining manner. So uh, this is something I'm going to bookmark. I'm going to take a look at, and we're just going to make sure that uh, this uh, this keeps on going the way it's going. Because if if, if it does, it's going to be kind of fun. It's going to be entertaining, and it's going to teach us something. And uh, it'll teach us something about uh, the fact that that space technology is everywhere in your home. If you go ahead and you take a look at it, or it's, it touches your life in every facet. I mean, even right down to plumbing for, for you know, for every for everything, um, you know, toothpaste, uh, you, you name it. it. It touches your it touches every facet of your life. So 
let's see if how entertaining this this gentleman can be without being a little too overboard. It'll be interesting to watch. Indeed, again, the website is WTFNASA.com, or if you prefer the safe for work version, it is WTNASA.com. <laughs> which stands for what the NASA, by the way. Otherwise, yeah. the other one, by the bleeps earlier, you could probably figure out what it means, or you can visit the website yourself, which has the actual uncensored word. So, warning. Yeah, let's try to hang on to that clean tag there, Sawyer. <laughs> <laughs> All right, now we're going to finish this off with a listener letter, and it appears as though this has probably become the most talked about issue by the listeners ever on Talking Space in our almost three years of existence. And we've talked about a lot. And go figure, this was all from an original listener letter talking about the Saturn V blueprints and if they still exist or not. And it's become a very interesting topic, and we've gotten a couple more letters on it. Here's one from Evan Burton, who sent this in through our Contact Us page on our website. And I quote, First time listener, and I think you'll find that although not all blueprints for the Saturn V survive, the large majority do, both with the contractors, in some cases, and in the U.S. National Archives. Saturn V production itself faced problems in the mid-1960s due to financial concerns and was shut down in the late 1960s. As to any claims that Saturn Vs were destroyed, that is totally absurd. Every single Saturn stage was either launched, used as a training device, or survives today in a museum. I would suggest the listener's reliable DOD contact, quote-unquote, is far from reliable. I'm happy to expand further on these issues if you would like. Thanks, Evan Burton. And I should add that he does include a link to a very interesting article dating back to March 13th, 2000 from Space.com. And it's very unique talking about a NASA official who specifically addressed this claim, saying that it's completely false. After a story was posted on Space.com in regards to a 1996 book. So this argument not only goes to what we were talking about, but all the way back to 1996. And it's still going on, and it's still popular, apparently. Yeah, I want to, first I want, I want to thank uh, uh, the listener for going ahead and uh, writing to us uh, further about this and uh, to try to go ahead and clear up the mystery even further. I think that this is one of those conspiracy theory things, too. I don't want to say it's along the same lines of did we land on the moon or not, but um it it kind of fits in with that that kind of thing um to address the reason why the saturn was was discontinued i don't think it was um development concerns i think really it was just a shift in uh in in policy that killed the saturn i don't think it was anything with reference to development either that or you know we never would have used it and one of the um early depictions of the space shuttle has a much smaller orbiter uh, sitting atop a, uh, a Saturn stack with the S1 and S2 stages below it and the orbiter replacing the S4B stage, which was the third stage of the Saturn. Uh, so, you know, to say that you know, the Saturn was, was stopped due to uh, developmental concerns, no, I, I don't think it was that. But I, I do think it was more of a shift in policy and a shift in direction where, you know, I think the country was getting, 
it was looking at, at, at lunar missions and, and quite frankly, as much as I, it's almost criminal to say, was getting bored. They were looking, we were looking inward. We were looking more at a, at a war raging in, in Vietnam and we were losing our interest in the moon. And uh, then we had Apollo 13, um, you know, and that kind of also, I think, helped seal the deal where we almost lost that crew. Um, so we were kind of looking in, you know, we decided we were going to look inward. Uh, but yeah, I mean, the, 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 the writer does, does touch on a good point. The contractors would have a lot of this material too. And of course the U S government would also have, uh, plans for it as well. And to go ahead and just say that there was some kind of, you know, as much as I, I don't want to use this term, uh, some kind of jihad against the, the, the Saturn V. I mean, come on, you know, this, I don't, I don't think that was, was that at all. And, and the irony is, here we are some 40 years later talking about, you know, how we just sort of dismantled that, cap- that interplanetary capability. I mean, shoot, we built the first interplanetary transportation th- system. Think about that. That's what the Apollo system was. And here we are some 40 years later trying to recreate that system. So that, that tells you something. You know, that, that's what the SLS is supposed to be once it, uh, it gets uh, uh, its act together and we see it out there on the pad so you know again i want to thank the listener for again kind of sort of helping us set the record straight and giving us giving us some more ammunition for the conspiracy theorists and uh again we appreciate you listening and appreciate uh, the input thanks so much which i should quote from the article that he linked to which is a space.com article again as i mentioned from michael payne and the quote is from paul shawcross from nasa's office of the inspector general and he is quoted as saying that the Saturn V blueprints are held at the Marshall Space Flight Center on microfilm, as well as going to say, quote, the Federal Archives in East Point, Georgia, also has 2,900 cubic feet of Saturn documents. Rocketdyne has in its archives dozens of volumes from its knowledge retention program. This effort was initiated in the late 60s to document every facet of F1 and J2 engine production to assist in any future restart, although he goes on to mention that trying to restart it would require more than just good blueprints. Yeah, I mean, you don't want to go ahead and reverse engineer things and and so on. It, it would be very difficult to do today. So today, yes, we're trying to rebuild the capability, but can we rebuild the Saturn? You know, most of the materials don't exist. Yeah, would, would, would we want to? It's the same thing with the shuttle. I mean, a lot of uh, that. Uh, there was an article that Wayne Hale himself wrote back in 2006, saying that a lot of these suppliers don't exist anymore. You know, because they've you know because they've had to scrounge for parts and things like that when 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 things you know kind of went poof on the shuttle, and some of these contractors they don't exist anymore, or they're they they've stopped the assembly line. Um, it's the same thing. With, it would be the same thing with the Saturn. And they just don't build them like they used to, that type of thing. Indeed. So once again, thank you very much, Evan Burton, who is a first-time listener as well, which I'm impressed for a first-time listener to actually send us an email regarding a topic. So thank you. Yes, Evan, thanks a whole bunch for listening, and I hope you continue. Indeed, and of course, if you have any comments about this story, which seems to be getting a bunch of comments on it, or about anything in particular, any story that we talk about, you can always send it to us. You know the routine. You can email it to us with mailbag at TalkingSpaceOnline.com being our email address. Sending it to us on Twitter as at TalkingSpace. And, of course, we also have a Facebook page at Facebook.com slash TalkingSpace. 
And with that, shameless plug, I believe that brings this episode to its conclusion. I'd like to thank everybody who joined us tonight, everybody including Gene McCulka. Thank you, Gene. Hey, Sawyer, this was a fun night. And uh, Mark, you should be back with us next week. You've got uh, a little bit of a respite to take. Uh, you were off uh, for about a month getting smarter for uh, for us uh, taxpayers who go ahead and, and uh, throw our money toward the FAA. So we appreciate your time. And uh, we're looking forward to having you back on the panel next week. Indeed. he They were making him smarter to make our skies safer. But now he kind of has some items to take care of and getting ready to return to Talking Space so he can give us some of his awesome knowledge on space and other interesting FAA-related stories in space. So looking forward to having him back. Indeed, and we, of course, are looking forward to having you back next week, and we hope you'll join us. But in the meantime, as always, have a great day, night, evening, or whatever it may be, where you are. (laughs) Thank you.